to Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin kind of a summer journey, and, and what we're about to do, church, is called an expository Bible study. Now, if you've been around MRCC for a while, you know what that means. If you haven't, let me explain really quick. What we do here is we kind of alternate between what we call topical series in our teaching, which cover prominent doctrines or issues or understandings that God wants us to have. And then we alternate that with what we call expository teaching series, which go verse through verse in books of the Bible. Now, here's why that's important. Our tendency is to say to God, hey, just talk to me about what's on my mind and heart right now. Just address my needs right now in my life. Well, what if your kids said that to you? (laughs) You would say, well, honey, there's a bigger picture. And so what God seeks to do is grow you and me to the place where we begin, hear me now, to engage God's word on its own terms. Not to say, God, here's my problem, give me a solution, but to say, God, I realize that the solutions to my problems are bigger than what I see. And so I want to receive your word on its own terms instead of kind of treating it like a magic eight ball, God, here's my thing, what's up? And as we grow in Christ and begin to engage his word on its own terms, we grow much more and we grow mature. And so we go back and forth between those things. This morning, we're going to start an expository series through the letter written to the church at Ephesus. And so we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. This will carry us through the summer. And let me begin this morning by asking you this. Raise your hand if, if you remember your first car. Go ahead, put your hand up if you remember your first car, right? I imagine your first car might have been like my first car, all right? I paid 250 bucks for my first car, all right? It was a 1960 Ford pickup, half-ton, rust-colored, if you follow me, all right? Multicolored, multiple shades of rust from top to bottom. It had four different tires on three different kinds of wheels, and you could actually watch the road going through the floorboards underneath when you drove it. I mean, you know, 250 bucks, high school kid's first car, what do you expect? And uh, when I bought it, of course, I was thrilled and excited out of my mind. I was mobile. I could actually take my girlfriend on a date in my car. You know, how cool is that? And so I had a little money left over because I thought it might cost more than it did. I shouldn't have, but I thought it might cost more than it did. And so what do you think I did with that leftover money? Do you think I replaced the floorboards or the seat or the tires? No, I did what every red-blooded 16-year-old, I bought a stereo to put in the car, right? <laughs> awesome stereo. It was, I think it was worth more than the truck, actually, okay? I got it installed in there. I'm like, now I have arrived. My truck has a stereo. And I'll never forget, I was excited to go pick up my girlfriend for our first date in my new truck, and I picked her up. We got maybe a mile from the house, And all of a sudden, the truck stopped going forward. (laughs) It would run, it would idle, but when you pushed on the pedal, nothing would happen. And so I'm sitting here idling in the middle of the road, and this was not how I'd planned for the date to go. Now, long story short, you know, I figured it out. Back in those days, I'm going to date myself here, the car had a carburetor. Anybody remember what that is? And so the the throttle linkage had broke. I used some rubber bands and one of her hair scrunchies in order to put the thing back together, (laughs) and we were able to drive. This was one of those trucks that got about 20 miles to the court, if you follow me, okay? (laughs) But the first thing I put in it was a radio. Why? I I share that story with you because it took me a while to understand that the parts of the truck you don't see are more important than the parts you do. What's under the hood is actually more significant than the stereo. And I say that because we tend to do the same kind of thing with our Christian faith. 
we focus on what we can see, on what's visible, whether that's results or consequences or blessings. And we sometimes almost treat our faith like a means to those visible blessings. Like, how can I get a better stereo in my life? How can Jesus help me do that? We want to fix all of our visible problems instead of or before our invisible ones. But God knows that the invisible ones are infinitely more significant. Let me say that again. We, we want to fix our visible problems. God knows that the invisible ones are infinitely more significant and in fact are the cure to the visible ones. Let me illustrate for you a little bit. Most of us will recognize or remember this man whose face is on the screen. Robin Williams, he's coming up there. There he is. And, and he made us laugh. He made us laugh a lot. He was wildly popular and wealthy and successful and he could be kind and wise sometimes. He could be other things, but he could also be kind and wise sometimes. So it was a huge shock when this man, this funny, popular man that, that everybody loved, who looked great on the outside, suddenly in August of 2014 in Paradise City, California, decided to murder himself, committed suicide, hung himself in his home. And when that happened, we were shocked because we said, hey, from the outside, man, he's got it all. But the reality is that what was going on on the inside of him was infinitely more significant than what was going on on the outside. And the same is true for you and me, and God knows that. And so when the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write the letter to the church at Ephesus, he wasn't only speaking to them, he was speaking to us, to all believers, about the significance of invisible things. This is a letter about invisible things. That doesn't mean they aren't real or tangible things. In fact, it means that what he's going to talk about, these invisible things, are more significant than the things we usually focus on. Here's how, you see, the invisible things are eternal. And you and I are all headed for a date with eternity. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all headed out of this world. I like to say that I like science fiction because my life is a science fiction story. We're on one world, we're going to another. We're going out of here. And so when Paul writes to the saints at Ephesus about these invisible things, he's talking about eternal things, the most important things. And then they're also more significant because they have to do with your soul. And you and me are more than a body. We're more than a mind. We're more than a bunch of emotions. We go way deep. Most of us don't even reach or touch the bottom of ourselves. And God knows that. He knows we are a soul as well as a mind and a body. And so he talks to us about invisible things, our souls, and how they influence and in fact drive and control visible things. And then he's going to talk about invisible things because he's going to tell us what Jesus has done in invisible places because they're the most important place. We know what he's done in visible places. Paul's going to talk to us about what he's done in invisible places. And the more we understand this, church, the more we grasp what he's done in invisible places, the more secure and confident, full of faith, full of joy, the more of a testimony to who he is that we become.
If I can kind of paint a picture about that for just a moment, when we lived over in Moscow, Idaho all those years ago, played a lot of basketball. In the summertime, guys would come back from colleges where they played, overseas where they played. And, and one summer day, uh, I went out down to play ball, and a guy showed up who, who about 10 years before had stopped playing in the NBA. <laughs> He's a great big guy. His name was Brian Quinnett, went to Washington State, seven feet tall. And it just so happened that that particular day I got on his team, and what a joy that was. <laughs> Because when you're a guard out on the perimeter and there's this seven-foot guy behind you, you're not worried about anything. <laughs> you know, some guy beats you, it's no big deal. He's not getting anywhere near that rim because there is a giant man back there, right? And, and I remember just discovering the freedom. This is pretty cool, you know? I, I don't really have to be afraid or worry because if anybody gets by me, it's all over. They're just going to have to stay out here and shoot. In the same way, Jesus wants you to know what's going on behind you in invisible places. Because when you do, it changes how you are in visible places. So that's what Ephesians is going to be about. And, and we're going to start right in verse 1 of chapter 1. I invited you to turn there a moment ago. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul. Let's approach God's word as we are growing up as believers. Let's take his word on his terms. Let's listen to what he wants to talk about before we begin focusing on what we want to talk about. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Here's what the scripture says. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this is the opening to his letter. This is the introduction to what he's going to say to the saints at Ephesus and to us. And what I want you to notice, first of all, is that God's word always comes to us in a context always comes to us in a context. We get in trouble when we try to separate his word from its context, pull one part out from the whole. And the context that the apostle establishes right here from the outset is that he is something called an apostle. Now that is tremendously significant. Let me tell you why. The scripture tells us that Jesus, early in his ministry, after he had begun to gather disciples, he went up on a mountain one night, prayed all night, and then he came down, and the Bible says that he chose 12 of his disciples, and he designated them apostles. Here's why that matters. The word designated is a little weak in English compared to the Greek because the Greek has the idea of investing them with his authority. The word apostle means sent one. Designated apostle means sent with legal authority. We might call it today power of attorney. Jesus chose 12 of his disciples and he gave them a specific kind of leadership and authority among his followers that includes us. And Paul is one of those. He wasn't chosen that night, but over in Acts chapter 9, we read that the resurrected Jesus came to Paul, the last of the apostles, that's what he calls himself, and called him the same way he called the other 12 and designated him as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul carries with him a very specific kind of authority among us as believers. Here's why that matters. It means that I, your pastor, don't get to just get up here and say whatever pops into my pointy little head. I don't get to make stuff up. I don't get to have wild stories that I create out of my own imagination. I am accountable in everything I say to what the apostles have taught just as I am accountable to Jesus for what he taught. I don't get to say, this isn't the internet up here, this is truth under authority. 
And in fact, the Bible says that you grow in your character as you test what I say by the scriptures because I am under authority. Here's what it also means. It means you're under authority as well. So you didn't get to go to your job site or your neighborhood or your school and say whatever crazy ideas about eternity and reality and God you may feel like you want to be true because just as I am under authority uh, as a leader among us, you are under authority as sent ones in the world around us. So the challenge right here from the outset is have you owned that authority? Do you make sure that what you say lines up with what Jesus and the apostles taught? They carry his legal authority. We are under them. As a matter of fact, Paul writes about this over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles. They're his leaders. Second, prophets, the Old Testament prophets did not have as great a revelation of the truth of God as the apostles did, and so the apostles interpret the prophets for us. Third, teachers, that's where your pastor comes in, but I'm under them. And then after that, uh, workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. The point is there's a hierarchy established here. Jesus did that very deliberately and intentionally, and he touches on it in other places well we won't get into this morning, but the point is we're under authority, you and I. And so Paul writes this letter with that authority. Grasp that. We are hearing from Jesus as much as we are hearing from the man, Paul. And from this context, look at what he says, verses 3 to 6. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, the invisible places, with every spiritual blessing in Christ, the eternal things. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given us in the one he loves. Now, let's break that down for a moment. We're going to go down through verse 14 this morning, so we're moving right along. First of all, notice what Paul says. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In other words, he has primarily blessed us in the invisible places we can't see yet, but which are infinitely more significant. They are eternal realities. Every visible reality is temporary. Invisible realities are permanent. They are eternal and infinite. And Paul is calling our attention right from the outset to the fact that God has done his greatest work in those places. And we say to ourselves, well, I want him to do it in visible places. And in that moment, we're like small children saying to our parents, you know, I want to go here. And I always remember Isaiah when he was about five, we told him we were going to Disneyland. He said, I don't want to go to, I want to go to the carnival at the mall. <laughs> I said, no, you're going to Disneyland. It's a long van ride, three days, but you're going to be thrilled when you get to the end of it. It's invisible to you now, but, oh, Isaiah, it's so real. Well, in the same way, God says, hey, I want to capture your attention, Greg. I want to capture your attention with invisible things and the, significant, the significance of what is going on there. To, to put it another way, to use the analogy that I opened with, salvation isn't a new radio for your broken-down pickup. It's a new engine and transmission and clutch and electrical system and all the rest. All that's under the hood, but it's, in fact, more important than what's in the cab. This doesn't mean that the radio doesn't matter at all, but it does mean there are more important things and the gospel is centered there. Jesus put it this way when he said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, he said, what good will it be 
for a man to gain the whole world, the visible, and yet forfeit his soul, the invisible? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's no good because the invisible is more significant than the visible. So what if you're rich and famous and powerful in this world? So what if you're popular and everybody loves you and looks up to you and thrills to you and laughs at you if you don't have the ability to not kill yourself? The invisible reality overcomes the visible one. Paul writes about this from another angle over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, guys, it's about much greater things than the visible. It's about the invisible. That's the first thing we want to know, the first thing that he calls our attention to. The second thing that I want to help you see this morning is that when we read through this passage, a lot of well-meaning believers get distracted by the idea that he chose us before the creation of the world. We read that. And they hear the phrase, predestined us to be adopted as sons. And they hear the phrase that these things happen in accordance with his will. And they place the emphasis in the wrong place in this passage and come up with the idea that God arbitrarily chooses people apart from any role on our part. And as a consequence, it doesn't matter what you do, you're either picked or not. And that idea can lead to some really crazy thinking. What I want to invite you to see is that that was never the Apostle Paul's intent. As a matter of fact, if you look through this passage carefully, you will notice that over and over again, he qualifies predestination and choosing with a very important phrase. He chose us in him, in Christ, before the creation of the world. The primary emphasis is on in him, not before the creation of the world. So the idea here is not that God picks people arbitrarily, but that God made a plan to do the whole Jesus thing ahead of time for us and on our behalf. You'll find this throughout the passage. Just walk through it yourself. Look at verse 5. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Look at verse 6. We have his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Look at verse 11. In him we were chosen. Look at verse 13. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And the whole thing comes home in the first part of verse 13. Listen to what the Paul, Paul says very explicitly. He says that you and me were included in predestination. Look at verse 13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and having believed, you were marked in him with a promised Holy Spirit. So don't get confused and throw away the in him because you're focusing on the predestined. The predestined is secondary to the in him. What God is really saying is that he knew ahead of time what needed to be done and had a plan in place in Christ to do it ahead of time. Here's why that's incredibly significant. God is never surprised by your struggles or failures. He doesn't wake up and go, oh, Greg, you did that? I had no idea. Oh, Greg, you have that attitude? What is, oh, you're blowing me away. No, God knew the whole way. And he prepared ahead of time in Christ. He knew that you were going to sin. He knew that the worst part of you was going to bleed through sometimes. He knew that. And he wasn't surprised by it. So he planned ahead of time in Christ 
to rescue us from that. Matter of fact, if I could just kind of paint a picture. When Ron and I were young parents and Isaiah came into our life, he's just a little baby, you know what little babies do. And so wherever we went in the beginning, Rhonda, understanding our situation, would always take this bag filled with diapers and wipes and stuff to clean up and take care of him. I didn't pay any attention to that. I'm an empty-headed guy, right? So I didn't carry diapers everywhere. And one time, I'll never forget, you know, Rhonda said, hey, I need you to take Isaiah to Grandma and Grandpa's house this afternoon. It's about a two-hour drive. I said, okay. I jumped in the car, put Isaiah in his car seat, and it's headed out, and I didn't take any diapers. I didn't take any wipes. <laughs> about 45 minutes into that drive, demonic things happened. <laughs> he just did what he does. I mean, I'm rolling the windows down. I'm driving with my head out the window. And I'm stuck with this for an hour until we get to grandma's because I didn't bring a diaper because I'm too dumb because I'm surprised when the kid poops, which shows you how smart I am. <laughs> On a serious note, God knew ahead of time what your struggles would be. Your struggle with pornography. Your struggle with jealousy and envy. You struggle with hatred, laziness, lying, gossip. He knew it all. And loving you in spite of it, he planned ahead of time in Christ. He had a plan. He had a diaper. And when you respond to his plan, you enter into it. When you believe that plan, when you receive that plan, that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And understanding this is crucial. The idea is not that God arbitrarily picked people before the season began like some NFL general manager in a rookie draft, but that he planned ahead of time to save you and me from our sins. This is a big deal. Uh, lots of people get confused on this notion and they sort of default into a kind of what Doris Day called K-Sarah-Sarah, whatever will be, will be myth about their Christian faith. And, and they assume then that their choices don't matter, but nothing could be further from the truth. Our choices matter very much to a Father God seeking to raise sons and daughters in the image of Jesus. And our choices matter first and most in our invisible places. Look at what Paul says in verse 7 as we continue moving through the passage. He says, in him, in Christ, there's that phrase again, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, catch this, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In other words, we have forgiveness defined by the riches of God. The riches of God's grace. In other words, the deciding factor in your relationship with God isn't the greatness of your failures, but the abundance of His grace. That's a big deal. When that invisible reality comes home to you, it will change your visible reality. It will cause you to behave as if you have a seven-footer behind you guarding the rim. It will set you free. And Paul wants us to understand that, that God's invisible riches are the measure of the grace that he gives to us. Huge deal. You know, when it comes down to it, the only difference between Peter and Judas, both failed Jesus personally, and profoundly on the night that he went to the cross. But one despaired, and one chose to believe in the abundance of his grace. That's the only difference between the two of them. 
And once you grasp the abundance of his grace, once you choose to believe that his grace is given in accordance with his riches, in that moment, your invisible reality changes. And the consequence is that you are visibly different. This understanding of the abundance of God's grace makes all the difference on the inside of you, in the invisible places. Here's how Jesus put it, Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. That good, that heart, both invisible. Yet they produce the visible. The evil man, same token, brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The emphasis here is on what is stored up. And the idea is that what is going on inside of me determines what comes out of me. Church, the sooner we grasp this, the more we will be able to receive God's grace and power in our visible lives. When you understand the basis on which he gives his grace, lavishly according to his riches, then because of your confidence in who he is, an invisible confidence that lives inside of you, you're able to say and do good things. Invisible reality produces visible. That's why Paul Paul goes on to say in verses 7 and 8 that he lavished this on us, this grace, with all wisdom and understanding. The idea is that wisdom and understanding about God come from your grasp of how he gives grace. Let me say that again. Wisdom and understanding about who God is comes from your understanding of how he gives his grace. Probably the most popular musical of our time, many of us will be familiar with it, is Les Miserables. It's been on Broadway forever, right? It's based on Victor Hugo's literary masterpiece of the same title, and it tells the story of a guy by the name of Jean Valjean. Jean's story is a simple one. He gets out of prison, uh, um, and when he gets out, there's a policeman who doesn't believe that he should be free, and as a consequence, Jean's on the run. Early in the story, he hides out in a bishop's house, a bishop who takes him in, seeing a man in need. But while he's staying at the bishop's house, the policeman catches up with him, and Jean tries to escape when the policeman arrives. And, and when he escapes, he steals a bunch of silverware from the bishop's kitchen. This is real silver stuff, valuable stuff, and throws it in a bag and, and heads out the door. But the policeman's too quick for him. He catches him. And having caught him red-handed, the policeman's overjoyed. And the bishop comes out and the policeman says, I caught him red-handed, he was stealing your silverware. And the bishop does something amazing. The bishop in that moment says, oh, no, he didn't steal it, I gave that to him. Oh, Jean, look, you didn't get the rest of it. You left some of it in the kitchen. You, oh, I'm glad you got stopped so we can get you the rest of it. And he goes in and gets the rest of the silverware and he dumps in the policeman standing there going, what? And Jean realizes what's happening. And then the bishop sends him off, tell your sister Hi. And Jean realizes in that moment that this bishop isn't just a religious guy, he's a Christ follower. And he realizes in that moment that he's been given grace. And friends, it changes him forever. He is an utterly changed man because of that invisible thing that happened in the moment when he was given grace. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 8, that in that moment John understood who the bishop was. In that moment, we understand who God is. This is the idea extending through verses 9 and 10. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. There it is again. To be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment and to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. In other words, to so change our hearts, to so change us on the inside in the invisible places that we can enter into and receive the visible reality of eternity. 
Paul is saying that these invisible realities of what Jesus has done for us produce visible realities in us, and that's why he calls our attention to them. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms, in the most important places. You know, as parents, we do kind of the same thing. We pour sacrificial love into our kids, hoping to shape their hearts, an invisible part of them, so that as they go out into the world, because their invisible parts have been shaped, they'll do visible good things. It's the same thing. We shouldn't be surprised to find God, a father, up to the same agenda inside of us. And so the question is, is your attention captured by the things God has done for you in invisible places? Everything else flows from it. Paul goes on to say, in him we were also chosen, not apart from him, but in him, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Very significant phrase. We're going to touch on it again and again this summer. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the prayer, until the invisible realities break into the visible, wash them away, and are revealed for what they are forever. I take note of a couple of things. We're almost done this morning. First of all, as we said earlier, you can see in verse 13 that the emphasis is primarily on being in him and that we become in him when we believe. That's the first thing. The second thing is someone may ask, how can I know if I have been, as the Bible says, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit? If it's invisible, how can I know whether it's happened? Or to put it another way, is there a visible aspect of this invisible reality? And the answer is yes, very clearly. And the Bible tells it to us over in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16, when Paul says this. He says, you received, when you believed, the spirit of sonship. It's a wonderful phrase. Some translations have it, the spirit of adoption. You received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. By him we speak to God as Father, as Dad. We do it intimately as loved children. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, friends, understand this. The visible evidence of the invisible reality of God's Spirit living in you and me is that we speak and relate to God as Father. You may think to yourself that every time you bow your head and relate to God as your Father, it's insignificant. God says it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. Yeah, my wife and I didn't become believers until after we were married, so we grew up in unchurched homes. I never talked to God, related to God, thought of God, you know, engaged with God as dad. But when I became a believer, one of the first things I learned was the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus taught us to begin by saying, Our Father. That invisible orientation, that reality changes everything else changes the visible realities in more ways than we can even count. The question this morning is, do you? You may be saying to yourself, I don't know if I measure up. Hey, it's not about measuring up. Do you relate to God as your dad? Do you approach him as your father because of what Jesus has done for you? If you do, that's the Holy Spirit in you. That's the spirit in you that is always trying to push through into your visible reality. And the more you let him, 
the more real it becomes. Sometimes people mistakenly think that the proof of God's spirit in you is that you can do miracles or speak in tongues or never fall into temptation or never cheer for any team from New England, but really it has to do with whether you relate to God as your father. And Paul says the whole point of this, this is where we wind up this morning. He says the whole point of us is that we might together be for the praise of his glory. What does that mean? Glory is the Greek word doxa, from which we get the doxology in church tradition. But what it really means broadly is reputation. But it's stronger than that. It's more personal. It has to do with fame, not like media fame, but with what we might call renown, an old-fashioned word. It it has to do with identity. and, And what Paul is saying is that when we get in touch with these invisible realities, the point is so that we might increase God's glory, his reputation, so that we might build people's awareness of who he really is. And that happens as we get in touch with the invisible things he's done. That happens visibly as we get in touch. Think of it this way. Let's say your bus crashes and uh, people are picking themselves up and all of a sudden you discover that the person next to you is a doctor. Suddenly, you want everybody to know that. And that person takes on a very specific role in the situation. God says that we, as we apprehend what he's done in invisible places for us, his grace that he gives on the basis of his abundance, that when we understand that, it changes our visible reality and we begin to become people who give God the reputation he deserves. People who tell the truth about who he is. All these invisible realities that Paul wants us to understand are meant to create the visible reality of you and me living together in peace and freedom and holiness and grace, having picnics on Sunday afternoon and inviting everybody and doing much more because that creates his reputation. The world needs to know who he is and they know that as we get in touch with the invisible reality of what he's done for us. Let me finish with a story. Probably a lot of you, like us, love, you know, going camping, going hiking, being outdoors, especially this time of year, July and August. And Some of the most precious memories of our marriage and family are camping trips. Maybe for you as well. But imagine this. How different would your memories of camping trips be if there was no gravity? I know, that's stupid. You can laugh and go, did he just say that? Yeah. Subtract gravity from your camping trip and it's very different. Can we agree on that? (laughs) Now, some would say it's an invisible reality. What's that got to do with anything? Well, in fact, it's probably the most necessary invisible reality of all the visible realities. If you don't stick to the planet, you got a problem. I actually read uh, an article this week about Charlie Duke who was on the 1972 Apollo mission to the moon and he had been a high jumper in high school and he had promised himself, didn't tell anybody, that when he got to the moon, before he left, he was going to do a high jump on the moon. (laughs) So this was his plan all the way along. He said, I got up there and I knew I might be one of the last people on the moon. So he said, I got out when the other guys weren't looking, I did a high jump. He said, because of it, I nearly died on the moon because I'd forgotten that the invisible reality of gravity was very different. He said, I could have spun off the planet, but as it was, I went way high, (laughs) fell down, nearly shattered my suit, could have died right then and there because I wasn't paying attention to the invisible reality. Paying attention to it, on the other hand, makes all the difference. And God invites us to do just that. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, where we finished this morning, we love because 
he first loved us. That invisible reality creates the visible one. I invite you to bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning. Would you do that? Give yourself and the person around you some sacred space. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know God as your father. The Bible says that he becomes your dad. You receive the spirit of adoption in the moment when you receive Jesus as your Savior, just like we read. If you've never done that, you can do that right now. God is listening. He's always been seeking you. He's here in this moment. He's inviting you to open the door to your invisible realities. And that happens when you simply say, God, I need a Savior. I receive your son, Jesus, as my Savior. If you're here this morning and the inside of you is a mess, God says, I know how to fix that. Receive my son as your Savior. And that fixing will begin right here and right now. Maybe you're here and, and you know you know this stuff and you have received Jesus as your Savior, but somewhere you started paying more attention to visible things than invisible ones. And as a consequence, you're struggling. God says, hey, I want you to fix your intention on what I've done in you in internal places, in invisible places. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. I want you to rest in that. I want you to know that I give my grace lavishly and abundantly so that you can give me the reputation that other people need to see. God, we thank you for your word this morning. As we begin this journey in Ephesians, Lord, grow us. Help us to mature into strong and wise believers, into people who point other people to you. We pray for that. We ask it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, church?